You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the May edition of Heart Sounds. This is one of the busiest times of year for cardiology conferences and it's been a real treat for all of us here at TCTMD to meet up with some of you in person at meetings around the globe. Many thanks to those of you who took the time to introduce yourselves and to mention that you tune in to this podcast. As you'll recall, Laura McEwen and I were just hitting the ground at the Sky 2018 meeting when this podcast aired last month. A week later, TCTMD's Yael Maxwell was at the European Atherosclerosis Society meeting in Lisbon. Yael returned stateside with her carry-on luggage crammed full of take-home stories, just as Todd Neal was heading out to the Heart Rhythm Society meeting in Boston. They were only just wrapping up their coverage of those meetings when EuroPCR kicked off in Paris. That's a whole lot of meeting news to try and wrap up in a single podcast. Try to think of this podcast as a snack tray, some petite four if we're talking EuroPCR. These are just some tiny nibbles from the feast of conference stories you could enjoy if you really bellied up to tctmd.com. Let's tuck in our napkins and get started. Before I launch into some meeting highlights, I'd like to circle back to a story that dominated the last few weeks of April and the first week or so of May. As I told you last month, Caitlin covered a study looking at outcomes among every U.S. patient with acute MI complicated by cardiogenic shock treated with an impella percutaneous ventricular support device. Caitlin's story seems to heap fuel on the fire of a debate already taking place on Cardio Twitter about the need for randomized controlled trials of this device in this setting. Caitlin stuck with this story in May, pulling together a really thoughtful feature answering some of the questions we were seeing on Twitter as to just how many studies have been launched in this field, how those panned out, and whether more are ongoing or planned. She also spoke to a range of clinicians who described the difficulty of getting the best level of evidence, a randomized controlled trial, in these very sick patients. I truly hope you'll seek out Caitlin's story. We titled it, To RCT or Not to RCT, Impella Debate Pivots on How Best to Study Patients on the Brink of Death. In the meantime, here's Duane Pinto of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, who spoke to Caitlin for her feature, trying to put this discussion in context. I think the substance of what people are discussing is what's the role of impella in cardiogenic shock. Right. And, uh, you know, there's uh, the people who have uh, seen it in practice and see the, uh, the value of using the device in the population, mainly through the hemodynamic effects they see right. at the bedside. Now, that's a little bit different than in a randomized trial showing versus not using the impella that there's a clinical outcome that's uh, that's there, like uh, improved survival or right. uh, shorter time in the hospital or things like that. Yeah. And given that it's such an expensive device, people say, well, show me these data, yeah. this data. And uh, that's the substance of the debate is uh, on one hand, people are saying, well, you know, the device is approved, mm-hmm. and we know that it provides hemodynamic support. Uh, should that be enough? Yeah, yeah. And some people say, yeah, that that's, that's enough because the population is so ill with such a high mortality, um, we have to do something. And people say, well, just doing something yeah. without any data doesn't necessarily mean you're helping the person. Yeah. And so 
Then there's the added dimension of cardiogenic shock people, as you know, are an extremely heterogeneous group. Mm-hmm. There are many people who fit the definition of shock who are relatively well and are probably only harmed by the complications of a device uh, because they were going to survive no matter what. And then there are those people who are not salvageable uh, because their scenario and their illness is so severe that no matter what we do, it's futile. Mm -hmm. And clinicians struggle with trying to find that middle ground at time zero Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. the patient and and not being able to know is this a person salvageable or not. So our prediction tools within cardiogenic shock of who are salvageable people or not are very rudimentary. Mm-hmm. So what that translates into is trying to design and implement a randomized trial yeah. is very difficult. Let's turn now to the whirlwind of meetings we flew through this month, starting with Sky. The biggest story to come out of Sky 2018, at least for TCTMD, was a discussion about the Orbita trial written by Laura McEwen. In a controversy session at Sky, Orbita lead PI Rasha Alami of Imperial College London joined the conference via video link to answer questions from the panel. In the course of doing so, she mentioned that 85% of patients randomized to the sham procedure in this much-talked-about trial ended up opting for PCI after the study wrapped up. I'll return to Orbita later in this podcast because, as Alami mentioned at Sky, new data from the trial were released a few weeks later at EuroPCR. I'll come to that in a moment. Another story Laura wrote from Sky also seemed to garner a lot of attention on TCTMD. This looked at the physical toll of cath lab work. We've written a lot about radiation in the cath lab, and certainly many of you will already be aware of these risks. Laura's story earlier this month, however, zeroed in on additional issues that have the potential to curtail the careers of those who work in interventional cardiology. One of these issues is sleep deprivation and the toll it takes on interventional cardiologists and their patients. Another, of course, is back injuries. According to Lloyd Klein of Rush University Medical College in Chicago, who spoke in this Sky session, half of all cath lab operators surveyed in 2014 reported sustaining at least one orthopedic injury, with 9% saying a spine problem had caused them to miss work. Klein had a provocative conclusion to his talk, pointing to the fact that economics and cost-cutting play a key role in the mounting occupational hazards faced by physicians and other healthcare workers in the cath lab. Have a listen. People are afraid that if you start complaining that you'll be out of the lab. So management and economics dictate the result, and unless we understand that the profit motive is crucial as an authentic origin of this problem, we're not going to get anywhere. You know, 70% of cardiologists now are contracted. The days of the individual independent cardiologist is coming to an end. And that means that if we want to respond to management and make changes, I will say something moderately provocative. We're going to have to unionize. Doctors don't want to unionize. But look at all the people, look at all the workers who would have the same occupational problems at their job that it wouldn't have been corrected if it wasn't for the fact that they were joining a union. So I'm going to conclude this with the same conclusion I have given since I gave this talk in 2004, because it hasn't changed. 
If the same level of ingenuity and commitment which produced the incredible innovations that have transformed the practice of interventional medicine were applied to enhancing workplace safety, then the career of an interventionist would undoubtedly be more comfortable, healthier, and longer. This year's EAS meeting in Lisbon, as in other years, was a mix of big-picture thinking on atherosclerotic disease and some zoomed-in research addressing up-and-coming targets for primary and secondary prevention. If it's the latter category that turns your crank, you'll want to check out Yael's coverage of new data from Orion 1. This latest analysis looked at how non-LDL lipoproteins respond to inclycerin, a small interfering RNA inhibitor of PCSK9. There's a lot of excitement about this investigational drug, as well as for lipoprotein A. In the same vein, Michelle O'Donoghue of the Brigham and Women's Hospital presented new data from the Fourier trial. This analysis showed that patients with higher baseline lipoprotein A seem more likely to derive benefit from evolocumab. Check out Yael's stories on our EAS conference page for the full scoop on both of these studies. This year, the EAS also released a new consensus document addressing the issue of statin safety. Reviewing the statin literature over the last 17 years, the EAS writing group looked at the seven most concerning side effects with this class of drugs. These are statin-associated muscle symptoms, new-onset diabetes, cognitive impairment, hemorrhagic stroke, hepatic function, renal function, and cataracts. According to senior author John Chapman of Petit-Salpêtrière University Hospital in Paris, clinicians should be reassured by the long-term safety of statins and the low risk of clinically relevant adverse effects. Yael also spoke with Alexander Turchin of the Brigham and Women's Hospital to see if he agreed with the EAS consensus document. Here's what Turchin told Yael. I think it's a reasonably good assessment of the literature, and I... uh generally agree with it. Um, I do think that statins are the risk-benefit ratio for statin therapy is towards the benefit more so than for many of the other medications that we prescribe. In cardiology or just in general? In cardiometabolic arena. Todd Neal covered the Heart Rhythm Society meeting for TCTMD this year in Boston, managing to pull together a range of stories. These looked at everything from thrombus formation on the Watchman left atrial appendage occluder to the potential arrhythmia risks of smoking or ingesting marijuana after a heart attack. The big-ticket item at HRS this year, of course, was Cabana. This was the eagerly awaited 2,200-patient trial comparing catheter ablation with drug therapy in patients with new or undertreated atrial fibrillation. As Todd reported May 10th, the trial missed its primary endpoint. Patients randomized to ablation did not have a lower rate of a composite of death, disabling stroke, serious bleeding, or cardiac arrest compared with patients treated with medications alone. But one quarter of the patients randomized to medical therapy crossed over to have ablation over the course of the study. As such, in a much-discussed pre-specified secondary finding that looked only at as-treated patients, those who actually got ablation had a significantly lower rate of the primary endpoint than those managed medically. You have to read Todd's story to get the full range of reactions to Cabana, By and large, electrophysiologists hailed Cabana as positive, despite failing to meet its primary endpoint. 
Others interviewed by Todd, however, many of them non-EPs, insisted that this secondary analysis should be considered hypothesis-generating and, importantly, should be fully explained to patients weighing their choices. For electrophysiologist Mintu Tarakia of the Palo Alto VA healthcare system, Cabana was a clear win for ablation. So I think what the takeaway should not be is that it was a negative trial. And um, it's important that a trial this complicated not get oversimplified as such. Um, I think the takeaway on the totality of evidence that we have is that ablation works and for the primary outcome uh, of the composite endpoint, <clears throat> when you look at both the as-treated analysis and the per-protocol analysis, there is a very significant benefit with a, uh, a clinically sound redu- risk reduction uh, or a risk reduction that's clinically meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so that is the takeaway for me. You cannot ignore the intention treat analysis uh, because, in fact, that is the gold standard for uh, assessing a trial, but that measure becomes less stable and less robust when you start having crossovers in the study. And so you can't look at that in isolation without taking context from the other two as-treated and per-protocol analyses. Vian Rose. That's what the sax player outside my Paris hotel window was belting out when I was trying to get a good night's sleep before EuroPCR kicked off at the Palais de Congrès. This year's meeting had a different vibe than years past, thanks to a host of positive studies. In one of the sessions I sat in, course director William Wines, who was part of the panel discussion, couldn't help himself, leaning forward and beaming around the room. Isn't it great, he said, to see so many positive studies? Let me add a little footnote, if I may. What we saw at EuroPCR this year were a lot of long-term follow-up on studies presented in previous years. Registry studies, secondary analyses of studies, some of which missed their primary endpoint, and pooled analyses of studies which, individually, weren't powered to look at hard endpoints. Not to throw cold water on what was, overall, a peppy congress and lots of fun to write about, but as many people mentioned for the stories we wrote, Cautious optimism, rather than unbridled enthusiasm, is probably the best reaction. Caitlin Cox, Yael Maxwell, and Michael Arudin joined me at EuroPCR this year, and they are still furiously writing up some of the stories they took home from Paris. A few big theme topics deserve mention here. One, of course, was the return of the sham controlled trial in renal denervation. We had two of those this year. Radiance HTN Solo using the Recore device and Spiral HTN on MED, using Medtronic's Simplicity Spiral Catheter. Both studies included a sham arm and looked at different patient populations. The Radiant study addressed patients who underwent a drug washout period prior to randomization, while the Spiral study enrolled patients taking one or more antihypertensive meds. The latter was also six-month results in the first 80 patients, while the former was the final 60-day results in 146 patients. You'll have to read Mike's story to get all the nuance, but suffice it to say that both devices were associated with modest reductions in systolic blood pressure based on 24-hour ambulatory BP monitoring, with no adverse effects. 
Enthusiasm over these results was palpable at EuroPCR. But as many observers noted, we're going to need longer follow-up and better understanding of the target patient population before this therapy really makes headway in this fraught field. Also grabbing headlines at EuroPCR were a range of studies trying to pinpoint the benefit of functional tests to identify which stable CAD patients will benefit from PCI and what those benefits might be long-term. Five-year outcomes from FAME2, for example, pointed to a reduction in MI among patients initially randomized to FFR-guided PCI instead of medical therapy, a finding that just reached statistical significance. Another study pooled data from FAME2, Dynami 3 Primalti, and Compare Acute, zeroing in on the non-culprit lesions in the latter trials. This one, too, pointed to a lower rate of death MI in patients treated with FFR-guided PCI than with medical therapy. I hope you'll seek out our stories on all of these studies and more by clicking on EuroPCR under the Conference tab. As promised, a new Orbita analysis also made waves at EuroPCR this year. As you'll recall, Orbita actually missed its primary endpoint. PCI improved exercise time to a greater degree than medical therapy, but the difference between groups was not significant. Last week, Rasha Alami presented a pre-specified secondary analysis looking at the link between baseline FFR and IFR and the primary endpoint of improvements in exercise time. To the surprise of some observers, baseline functional tests did not pinpoint which patients in Orbita would benefit from PCI in terms of symptom relief or improvement in exercise time. Instead, FFR, IFR, along the whole spectrum of values, tracked closely with improvements in ischemia after PCI as measured on stress echo. In a second analysis, one that was not part of the original trial design, investigators found that patients were more likely to report being angina-free if they'd been treated with PCI rather than a sham procedure. I spoke with Alami about these new findings for my story. Here's part of our conversation. Many people said that orbital was negative because they felt that excluding FFR negative and IFR negative patients would have improved the power of the study. Right. In fact, if you expect that, what you would expect is that exercise time, symptoms may vary along an FFR and IFR spectrum. And what we've shown in our study, albeit with some limitations, because, of course, if your endpoint is negative or neutral between the two arms, so exercise time symptoms, of course, we saw no significant difference between the two arms, you probably are, um, you probably don't have enough power to be able to then thread the group within and look at baseline parameters. Um, but having said that, we didn't see a strong signal that patients who have very highly ischemic IFR and IFR values, you know, exercised would have gained more exercise time improvement based on symptoms. Now, that has been a surprise to us, certainly. Having said that, what is very interesting is you can entirely predict the benefit that you see on stress echoes, so how much ischemia reduction you have strongly correlates with the baseline FFR and the baseline IFR. So it's not to say that stenting doesn't work because stenting certainly improves the blood supply to these patients' hearts and in fact predictably so. The worse their blood supply is, the better stenting is for them. Um, but again, it brings us back to whether symptoms and exercise time are as tightly linked to release of stenosis as we expected.
I hope you'll check out our conference page to get all the news from each of these meetings. Click on the conference tab at the top of the page at tctmd.com to navigate to news and slides. Of course, there was other news in May I didn't have time to tell you about today. After a long wait, Andexanet Alpha, the first reversal agent for Factor 10A inhibitors, finally got a green light from the FDA earlier this month. We also did a story about the FDA approval of Angel Medical's Guardian System, an implantable cardiac monitor designed to alert patients that they are having an acute coronary syndrome. We're hoping for a few quiet weeks here at the start of June. Then Michael O'Reardon and I will head to the Structural Heart Disease Summit in Chicago. This is a new one, a combination of the TVT and PFO LAA meetings of earlier years. Maybe I'll see some of you there. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Over and out.